I'm glad that you're here this morning. Picked a great day to be here. We're going to worship God today. That's what we're doing. Hey, I know that Orlando already mentioned it, but I've got to say how much fun yesterday was. The fall festival, if you missed it, you just missed a lot of fun. And I really want to thank everybody. Angie kind of headed the thing up, but so many other people jumped in and helped. And Mary had the big thing of food for all of us. And Stephen was in the dunk tank. And Robbie John was rocking a onesie. And it was really, it was a lot of fun. So uh, it was a good time. Thanks to all of you who let all the rest of us just come and enjoy it. Uh, I know that all the kids are coming down off a sugar high this morning. So, you know, good luck with that too, I guess. But, uh, but we're glad you're here. We are continuing our series on faith this morning, and you'll remember a couple weeks ago I opened this series up by asking you to use your imagination and to try to imagine what your life would look like if you were absolutely sure, completely convinced that one, there is a God, that this is a God that knows you personally, knows everything about you, knows your heart knows your mind, knows who you are, knows who you want to be, and cares for you. And three is a God who has promised to never leave you, to never forsake you, to walk with you through anything that life might throw at you. I asked you to use your imagination and kind of try to imagine what life would look like if you were convinced of those three things. So I want to pick up on that this morning and kind of continue that train of thought but before I do that, I want to make a statement, and I think it's a true statement. And the statement is this. I think that every time we come together like this, every time we're in a corporate worship service, there's someone here who needs a word from the Lord. I'm convinced every time we get together, there's someone in the audience, there's someone in the room who needs some encouragement or needs some comfort or needs some peace, or some instruction. I think there's someone that's looking for a word from the Lord. And that might happen, you know, during this time in our, you know, a sermon. It might happen with, you know, the time we spin around the table. I appreciate IT and what he shared with us and the way he made us think today about uh, the sun and life. It might happen in a class setting. And we have an opportunity today between our two services for a fellowship time and in the Life Center over here. I hope you stay for that. Get to know each other and get to know the people that come to second service. Maybe it's a conversation that happens there that, that someone really needs to have and someone really needs to hear. Maybe it's a conversation you have in the parking lot out here. I think some of the, some of the best things that happen when we get together happen conversations in the foyer or conversations in the parking lot. Conversations over a cup of coffee, which when you think about it, it's a pretty neat thing. Because what that means is all of us can be used by God to help someone, to minister to someone, to encourage someone, to you know, offer a, a shoulder, offer an ear, to, to be there for someone. God can use us in, in every way, and He can use all of us. And I want to talk this morning about a conversation. Now I want to talk this morning about a conversation that takes place after a sermon. It's a conversation Jesus has. It's a conversation about faith. It starts off with Jesus talking to a large group of people. 
And then the conversation narrows a little bit, and he begins talking to a much smaller group of people, and eventually the conversation winds up with him just talking to one person. Now, during the conversation, Jesus is going to make a statement, and it's a very shocking statement that he makes. You know, when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you find is a lot of times Jesus makes shocking statements. Now, they don't seem that shocking to us because we have 2,000 years of hindsight. You know, we look back and, and we, we, we know the whole book. It doesn't seem quite as radical to us because we've had people explaining it to us all of our lives. But Jesus is always making statements that to those people that heard it for the first time, it would have been jaw-dropping. It would have been completely different than anything they'd ever heard. Jesus said things like, um, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who hurt you. Wow. You know, even today, wow. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I doubt very many of us pray for people who hurt us. We don't usually pray for our friends, let alone our enemies. But Jesus said, pray for your enemies. If someone asks for your coat, give them your jacket. Hmm, I don't want to do that. Forgive people. How many times? Just tell me a number. No, forgive them all the time. Like, give me a number. Like 100 times? Like 149 times? Don't keep score. Don't keep count. Just, just forgive people. Pay your taxes. They didn't want to hear that. Well, they hated Rome. They hated paying taxes to Caesar. Jesus' teaching were so extreme and so radical. And then, and then people like me, preachers and teachers, will tell people like you, well, what Jesus really meant when he said that was this. And then people like you go home and read your own Bible and you say, I don't know. Sure sounds like he meant what he said. And if he didn't mean what he said, then you know why did he say it? Jesus' teaching were extreme. They were radical. And sometimes they were a little bit confusing. Now we don't like to use that phrase. We don't like to say that they were confusing. Because that makes it sound like we can't really understand exactly what Jesus meant. So we use other words. We say they were very deep. Or his teaching is very profound. Multi-layered. Which are just really pretty fancy words for some of it's a little bit confusing. Some of it's a little bit difficult. But what you find is in these deep, profound hard, a little bit confusing statements that Jesus makes, you find some of the most beautiful teaching and some of the most beautiful truths anywhere that you find in Scripture. So this morning, open up your Bibles to John chapter 6. And we are going to look at a conversation that Jesus has. And I'm going to warn you up front, it's a little bit confusing. A lot confusing to the people who heard it the first time. A little bit of context first. In John chapter 6, the very beginning of that chapter, famous chapter, uh, Jesus performs a tremendous miracle. He feeds 5,000 people with you know, the five loaves and two fish that they found in a boy's sack lunch. 
All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record that, that miracle. Uh, we're told that it was 5,000 men, which means the actual number could have easily doubled when you add in women and children. But it was an amazing miracle. It was, it was undeniable, witnessed by thousands and thousands of people. And you remember that food was a really big thing in the first century. People were always wondering, what are we going to eat and where are we going to get it? Because they didn't have refrigeration. They, you know, stockpiling food was, was a difficult thing for them. So anytime someone talked about food, people paid attention. Now here's Jesus of Nazareth handing out this free meal to thousands of people. You know, everybody gets as much as they want to eat. And after the miracle, there's an awful lot of people in this crowd that kind of come to the conclusion, you know what? This buffet was pretty good. I think I'm going to hang out with Jesus for a while. Yeah, I'm going to hang around him for a while and see what happens next. Because this whole food thing, all we could eat out of just a handful of food, that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, Jesus, I'm going to hang out with you for a while. Well, Jesus is able to slip away alone. He sends his disciples across the, the Sea of Galilee towards Capernaum. He, he actually catches up with them walking on the water. That's a different sermon. But they end up in Capernaum. The crowd that had been fed walks around the lake to catch up with Jesus. They're looking for Jesus when actually what they're looking for is another meal. They're looking for breakfast, right? I mean, the five loaves and the two fish, that was a great miracle. I wonder what this guy could do with five eggs and two slabs of bacon. Of course, they wouldn't eat the bacon, but you get my point. You know, the, the dinner was great. Uh, I'm ready for breakfast now. So they find Jesus. He's teaching in the synagogue. And they try to manipulate Jesus into another miracle. Basically, more food. We're still hungry. Okay? So we're going to pick up the story in John chapter 6, verse 26. Verse 26, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. Jesus said, you ate the fish and you ate the bread, but now you're hungry again, aren't you? Now you want something else to eat, don't you? But Jesus is trying to give them something better. Jesus is trying to get their attention off the here and now, off the immediate, off the temporary. Jesus is trying to get them to have a spiritual focus, an eternal focus, on a, on a, on a spiritual level. And he tells them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. They hear Jesus say that and they've got to be thinking, exactly, that's why we're here. Because we don't want to be hungry anymore. We love the meal that you shared with us you know, the other night. Now we want more of that. But of course we know that's not what Jesus is talking about. But I doubt that they really picked up on what Jesus was trying to teach them in that moment. I'm not sure they understood what he meant when he made that statement. And then Jesus is going to take it a step further. And for some people, a step too far. 
Skip down to verse 53. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. What? What did He just say? I, I, I think He said that we've got to eat the flesh and drink the blood. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now raise him up at the last day. Jesus is sort of in the middle of this sermon. Imagine hearing that in the middle of a, a sermon. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. See, they didn't know what we know. That didn't make any sense to them. They didn't know that not too long from then Jesus would be in an upper room and He would hand His apostles some bread and some wine and say, this bread represents my body and this wine represents my blood. At that point, you know, the apostles go, oh, okay, now that made sense what you said back there. Okay, now we get it. But at this point, they don't have that context. They don't know any of that yet. So this is really confusing to everybody. And then, this is just a snapshot, by the way. Read chapter 6. Jesus uses this kind of language all through the chapter. And what you see is the mood of the crowd start to change. Jesus is making these kinds of statements, these really difficult, pretty confusing statements, especially if you heard it there in the moment for the first time. And the crowd starts to become a little bit uneasy. Verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? This is a hard teaching. Yeah, you think? It's a little bit of an understatement, isn't it? Who can accept this? This is hard. This is difficult. Very next verse, verse 61. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? I've told you before, never grumble around Jesus. He knows your heart. People are grumbling around Jesus. Jesus knows their heart. And he asked them, does this offend you? Are you starting to reconsider your decision to follow me? Are you starting to think maybe it wasn't such a good idea to align yourselves with me? Are you starting to doubt a little bit? Is this affecting your faith in me? And John tells us that this, this is really kind of a defining moment in the ministry of Jesus. Verse 66. From this time on, many of his disciples, and what John is talking about here is all those people who kind of followed him looking for food. All those people who were looking for the next thing, the next miracle, what this Jesus of Nazareth was going to do, you know, interesting sideshow. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And again, in the Gospel of John, this is, a, this is a defining moment. This is a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. This sort of marks the end of the crowds in Jesus' public ministry. Things are about to become difficult. And I think the apostles, those twelve, I think they understand that. Okay, things are about to change. This is now a new phase in this adventure that we're on. 
The stakes are being raised. So the apostles are watching people leave. And I've got to think that some of these same thoughts are going through the apostles' minds as well. But I don't know, this is really a hard teaching. This might be a good time for, for us to slip away as well, for me to slip away too. And then the conversation narrows. The sermon's over, and Jesus now is going to continue this conversation with just his guys, just the twelve. And he asks them a question in verse 67. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked those twelve, you don't want to leave too, do you? And I would guess that this is a very awkward moment for the apostles. Again, Jesus knows their heart. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're feeling. He knows that they're confused. Everybody's leaving. How about you? Do you want to leave too? And I wonder what was going through their minds. And maybe what was going through their minds is exactly what everybody else was thinking. Because suddenly, following Jesus is going to cost them something. Suddenly, following Jesus is being more and more difficult. And from a worldly standard, point of view, following Jesus is not going to be to their advantage. In fact, from a worldly point of view, following Jesus is about to be to their disadvantage. You know, think, these guys have been kind of rock stars so far, these 12. Just, you know, not very long ago, they were the ones handing out all the food. He said, take as much as you want. There's plenty. Five loaves, two fish, it's still coming. Everybody likes that. Everybody's happy. Everybody's thanking them. They were the ones who were kind of keeping crowd control. Everybody's bringing Jesus' people to be healed. You know, the sick and the lame and the hurting and, and the, the, the apostles were kind of you know, there to make sure everything went well. They were the ones standing next to the one. That was a good time. Everybody loved us. But things are about to change. Now suddenly things are going to be hard. It's going to cost them something. And I want you to think about this this morning. There is a time coming in your life, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, but there's a time coming in your life where following Jesus is going to cost you something. Being a follower of Jesus from a worldly standard, from a worldly point of view, is not going to be to your advantage. In fact, from a worldly perspective, following Jesus is going to be to your disadvantage. It's going to make your life harder, not easier. And for a lot of people, this happens about their freshman year of college. And they grow up in a Christian home, and they go to youth group activities, and parents and other people are always kind of telling them where to go and what to do and how to spend their time and how to spend their money. Now all of a sudden, they're a long way from home, and they're all by themselves, and no one cares what they do. No one knows what they do. No one's going to church on Sunday mornings. No one's reading their Bibles. No one seems to be living a life that that you would call godly. And all these new friends of yours are saying, hey, you know, that was then, this is now. Come on, what are you going to do? Let your mom and dad tell you what to do for the rest of your life? And you start thinking, I don't know. This is hard. Oh, now this Christianity thing, it's, it's kind of constricting. And I feel like it's not to my advantage. In fact, it's kind of cramping my style a little bit. 
And you can almost hear Jesus saying, how about you? Are you going to leave too? And a lot of young people in that stage of life say, I'm thinking about it. Or maybe in your business dealings, you've made a commitment, I'm going to be above board, I want to be you know, a guy that has integrity, a woman who works honestly, I want to do things right for the right ways. And you see other people, your competitors, they're not playing by the same rules. And they're cutting corners. And they're being a little bit deceitful. And you know what? They're getting ahead. They're getting ahead of you. And you're losing business. And you're losing money because you're doing the right thing. Not only am I losing money, but now I'm tithing on this money too. So my, you know, my bottom line's really hurting. You can almost hear Jesus ask, what about you? Are you going to leave too? And maybe one part of it says, you know, I think in some ways I'd be better off. Now my bottom line would probably be better off if I wasn't committed to this Jesus guy. Or maybe you're in a difficult season of your marriage. And you've always been the one, you know, so we've got to tough it out and we're going to stick with it. And we've been to all the classes and we've seen all the videos and we've counseled other couples, you know, about you know, how to get through your marriage. But now it's me. And now it seems like it would be easier if I wasn't a Christian. Because now being a Christian just, you know, it's kind of making me feel guilty. And it would be really easy just to, to walk away and walk away from God. And you almost hear Jesus ask, you know, okay, whatever happens in your marriage, however that plays out, you can walk away from me too. Are you just going to turn your back on me too? And a lot of people think, boy, it sure seems like it would be easier. Because Jesus is costing me something. It's difficult being a Christian through these kinds of seasons. And then Jesus' conversation gets smaller. He's been talking to the crowd. He narrows it down and he's talking to the twelve. And now he's just going to talk to one person. He's going to talk to Peter. And I know there's other people around, but when I read this, it sure seems to me like Jesus is really focused in on Peter and vice versa. It's almost like in the movies where you know everything else kind of goes black and it's just two people there. And you get the sense that Peter is so focused on Jesus. I mean, he is so open. And he's he's so honest. And he's so, I don't know if broken is the right word, but he is so vulnerable. You know, these words are coming from Peter's mouth, but you can tell, boy, it's coming straight from Peter's heart. And, and we get after Peter sometimes for saying and doing the wrong things, but boy, he, he gets it right this time. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Verse 68. Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? See, Peter knows it's about to get hard. But Peter also realizes, if I'm going to walk away from Jesus, I'm walking towards someone else. And if I'm going to walk away from Jesus, I'm walking towards something else. And for me to refuse Jesus means that I've got to choose something else. So Peter asked the question, where else am I going to go? 
Who else am I going to follow? To whom shall we go? And we're talking about faith. As we're talking about faith, we need to be asking that same question. To whom shall we go? In fact, say that out loud with me. To whom shall we go? One more time. To whom shall we go? I know we don't use that kind of verbiage exactly, but, but say it that way anyway, because you'll remember it's from the Bible then. To whom shall we go? And that really is the question. That's the question that we need to be asking. We don't need to be asking all the other questions that we always ask. The question is not, God, why don't you fix this for me? The question isn't, God, why don't you change this person, and my life would be so much easier. God, why don't you change this situation, and my life would be so much simpler. God, why don't you just explain to me right now how this is all going to play out, how it's all going to end, and then I'll be able to get through it. Those aren't the questions we should be asking. The question we should be asking is, to whom shall we go? Where else are we going to go? And then Peter actually explains his answer a little bit more perfectly. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And we're talking about faith. This is a statement of faith. Peter says, I'm interested in life, don't get me wrong, me and everybody else, but, but what I'm really interested in is eternal life. And the only way I can gain eternal life is Jesus. Where else am I going to go for eternal life? You alone have the words of eternal life. See, here's what I know about you. Because here's what I know about me. Someday, eternal life is going to be very, very important to us. In fact, someday, eternal life is really going to be all you think about. And everything else that we argue about, everything else that we, we worry about, everything else that we're so consumed with, everything else that we're so passionate about, isn't going to matter a bit. Someday, we're going to get to a point in this life where we're going to realize all that matters is the next life. And all we really think about is the next life. How do I inherit eternal life? To whom shall I go? The only answer is Jesus. Because He is the way, the truth, and the life. Because there really is a God... He knows everything about me. He knows my name. He knows my heart. He knows who I am. He knows who I desperately want to be. He cares for me. And He's promised to never leave me. He's promised to never abandon me. Even when things get hard. Even when everybody else leaves. Even when things get confusing. To whom shall I go? You know, to follow Jesus is to obey Jesus. His words, His teaching, His example. To confess Him as the Lord of your life. To repent of your sins. 
be baptized into Jesus? Maybe you've already done that. If you haven't, well, we'd love to talk to you about it. But maybe you have, and somewhere along the line, you started asking different questions. You started looking for different answers. And it's led you someplace that you never really intended to be. And one day you wake up and you realize, you know, I'm not following Jesus anymore. It got hard and I kind of walked away. I kind of turned my back and started following something else or someone else. Maybe it's time to come back. Maybe it's time to ask the right question again. To whom shall we go? Only Jesus has the words to lead to eternal life. This week, make that your question. In that moment, in that temptation, in that time of trial, that time of transition, a decision has to be made. To whom shall I go? And make sure the answer is Jesus. If we can help you as a family this morning in any way, there's going to be some people at the front of the auditorium that will meet with you and will pray with you, whatever we can do.